Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Someone was shaking the girl awake. Maria Rasputin had fallen asleep in one world. She was waking up in another. The maid got her out of bed alongside her sister Varvara and told Grigori's two daughters that their father had not returned from his night out on the town. She was worried. At first, this was nothing to Maria. Her father was often out late. Sometimes he didn't come home, and that was nothing unusual. But the hours ticked by. And then the calls started to come in, from the police. They were trying to track down Grigori as well. Well, all the maid could tell them was that she had seen his friend come by to pick him up the night before, the family friend, Felix Yusupov, and they had left together, so Rasputin must be at the Yusupov Palace. People started coming to their apartment. They started to line up at the door as usual, bringing their pain, their needs, their desires— but there was no sign of Grigori to meet them. So Maria put in a call to her friends of the Empress, and they promptly relayed the message to Alexandra. Grigori, it seemed, was missing. After that, Maria called the woman who had introduced Rasputin and Felix Yusupov. Together, they tried to get in touch with Felix. After a few tries, they had him on the phone. But as Maria watched them talk, she saw something come over the woman's face. By the time they ended the call, Maria could tell she was deeply upset. Felix had sworn that he had not seen Grigori the night before. He had not picked him up, much less hosted him at the Yusupov Palace. That was all he had to say, and then he hung up. The two looked at each other. One thing was clear. Felix was lying, and with Grigori missing, they began to suspect why. It was a moment of dawning horror that would stay with Maria for the rest of her life. Soon, police agents were at the door, They came to sweep the house. Of course, Maria let them in, and they marched into Rasputin's study, where they started to gather up his papers. Maria may not have realized it right away, but they were wasting no time. Anything in Grigori's possession that could embarrass the Tsar needed to be swept out of sight immediately. The Empire was the priority. But the Rasputin apartment wasn't the only place getting the police sweep. Because those gunshots in the courtyard of the Yusupov Palace, they hadn't gone unheard. The conspirators had planned for everything to be done quietly in the prepared room of the palace basement. That plan had failed, and the thing they were afraid of actually came true. A person who heard those gunshots was a police officer, and shortly after the shooting, he had strolled up to the Yusupov Palace and seen Felix standing outside. So he approached and asked what was going on. Felix tried to play it off. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe it was just some of his friends playing with a pistol. Nothing serious. The officer had walked on, but around 4 a.m. he came back. Something about Felix hadn't sat right with him. If there was some horseplay with the handgun, he thought he should probably report it. This time, though, he talked with a man who had fired the gun, Vladimir Purishkevich. When the police officer started asking questions, Purishkevich leaned in. He put his arm around the officer's shoulder, and he took the opposite approach from Felix. I mean, the exact opposite. 
He asked the officer what he thought of Grigory Rasputin. Was he an enemy of Russia and an enemy of the Tsar? And the officer agreed. And so Purushkevich told him that only hours before, they had killed Grigory Rasputin in that very courtyard. And if that sounds like an enormous mistake by Purushkevich, then you're probably following along. The police officer promised not to tell, and Purushkevich slapped him on the shoulder and sent him on his way. Unfortunately for the murderers, his way took him right back to the police station, where he immediately told his supervisors. Word flashed up the chain of command. By 8 o'clock the next morning, the report already had reached the Minister of the Interior. Grigory Rasputin had been killed, and in the ranks of the Petrograd police, they were celebrating his murder. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. The photographer's camera captured the scene. A line of blood crossed the snowy courtyard, leading away from the side entrance. Investigators were trying to argue their way inside the palace, but Felix was a relative of the Tsar. Only orders from the emperor himself could authorize a search, and someone was saying that the blood they could see spilled on the ground came from the family dog, since one of the servants had shot it in the courtyard in the dark hours of the morning. Eventually, though, the police were let into the palace, but they were guided from room to room and not allowed to wander on their own. They never saw the basement room. It was true about the dog, though. Felix had ordered one of his servants to shoot it outside and cover their tracks. But the splashes of its blood over the trail in the snow weren't enough to hide what had happened in his house. Not least because Puriskevich had been telling people their plans for weeks. He had been telling people in the Russian government. He had been telling journalists. Russia had to be saved, so Rasputin had to go. It was the message he had been spreading everywhere, and there was no shortage of people eager to lap it up. Purushkevich was always ready to clarify that he didn't think any of the rumors were true, for example, about Grigory and the Empress being lovers. But it was bad enough that people believed it was true, and so Purushkevich said he was going to kill Rasputin like a dog. Once, Purushkevich had even met with the head of the British secret intelligence in Petrograd and told him, too. Apparently, Purushkevich even laid out the details of the plan. The British agents ignored the report only because he had already heard so many stories from other people saying they would kill Rasputin as well, and nothing had ever happened. Only this time, there was blood in the snow. And the very next day, two workers who were crossing the Petrovsky Bridge saw blood on the railing, too. Not to mention the rubber burned into the road where a vehicle had sped away. When a watchman arrived to check out their report, he went down onto the ice under the bridge, and there he spotted a boot that had been carelessly thrown from above and missed the hole in the ice. When he reported it to the police, it put them on the trail of Grigori's body. Things were moving fast now. By midday on December 17th, the word was spread wide. Prince Felix Yusupov, together with Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, Vladimir Purishkevich, and other conspirators, had murdered Grigory Rasputin. The French foreign minister was reporting it back across Europe. The Stock Exchange Gazette was running the story. The news was out. All attempts to do things quietly had failed. 
The murderers gathered to plot their next move. They agreed to keep up the story about the dog for as long as they could. No one would admit to the truth that was now being published across Russia, but they knew that they would only last so long. So they agreed. They needed to run. Purishkevich didn't waste any time. He hopped on a hospital train and raced toward the Romanian front. Felix Yusupov, though, wasn't so quick to turn tail. That night, he says he went to dinner with a British officer and fielded phone calls from friends who are rushing to congratulate him. Not that we can take his word for it, but there's no doubt. Felix was proud of himself, and he wanted to bask. After all, no authority below the Tsar could touch him. Not far off, though, the news was landing very differently in a different palace. Like she did so many other times, Alexandra put pen to paper and wrote to Nicholas. She told him what she knew, that Grigory was missing, that Purishkevich was crowing about killing Rasputin, that Felix was denying it, but that he was definitely involved. She wrote, I cannot believe that our friend has been killed. God have mercy. In the following days, people who saw Alexandra said it was clear. She was in anguish. She ordered that Felix Yusupov was forbidden to leave the capital. She placed the Tsar's cousin, Grand Duke Dmitri, under house arrest. She worried, she raged, and she refused to be swayed by the excuses and the lies they tried to send her. She was cut to the core. Especially when there was no more denying the truth. In the early morning hours of Monday, December 19th, a small piece of fabric was spotted downstream from the bridge, poking up through a crack in the surface of the frozen river. Divers broke through, and sure enough, right there, stuck to the underside of the ice, was Grigory Rasputin's body. They lowered hooks and dragged him from the water. A photographer's camera captured the scene. It was a stunning image. Rasputin's body on its back, dragged through the snow on a plank of wood, his legs are still wrapped in the cloth from the Yusupov palace, and his ankles are still bound by a length of chain. His frozen beard points up toward the sky, and his arms are spread wide. They brought Maria Rasputin to the river. At the end of the bridge was a small hut, where Maria and her sister were led inside. There, they were shown a body. The sight was horrible. Maria remembered that the face was swollen and the hair was thick with clots of blood. But the debris had been cleaned off his features and Maria could see that it was her father. She said his clothes were frozen stiff and they peeled and flaked like sheets of mica. The investigators took note of the details. It was clear that whatever weights were tied to the body had slipped away and Rasputin had not sunk when he hit the water. What's more, the fur coat that was thrown into the water with the body had trapped air and acted as a float, the gold cross still clung to his chest over the blue silk shirt he had gotten as a gift from Alexandra. The thin twine that had tied his wrists had obviously snapped. Perhaps it was when he hit the water, or maybe it was during the fall. When the body was flung over the rail, the head seemed to have struck one of the supports on the way down. But there was no doubt, this was Rasputin's body. And along with everything else, the bullet holes puncturing his head and chest told the tale. This was murder. The next thing they needed, without a minute of delay, was an autopsy. Afraid of what might happen if his followers knew his body was in the city, the authorities bustled the girls away and packed Rasputin's corpse for travel. His arms, frozen wide in the icy river in rigor mortis, refused to fit into a coffin, 
So in an open-topped wooden box, Grigory's body was carried seven kilometers outside the city limits to the Chesmensky Palace. The roads were blocked, guards were set, and the body was warmed up to thaw. The man called in for the work was Petrograd's senior autopsy surgeon, Dr. Dmitry Kosoratov. Known as one of the leading forensic experts in Russia, he was the man trusted to write manuals on forensic medicine and lecture at the Military Medical Academy. But it didn't take his fine-tuned expertise to detect the cloud of alcohol around the body. Rasputin's corpse, he said, smelled like cognac. There was a challenge of determining what had been done to the body after death, where it was smashed against the bridge supports and gashed open by the edge of the river ice. And there was the challenge of tracing the three bullet wounds that Dr. Kosorotov identified. And the shot to Grigory's forehead, he determined, had been close enough to leave powder residue. As he tallied up the injuries and started to come to a determination of what had killed the Siberian holy man, Dr. Kosorotov drew a picture that was sound and reasonable and based on the evidence in front of him. Unfortunately, that picture is not the one that the world would see. In fact, the story of Rasputin's death was already being told, without the benefit of knowing what the autopsy found. Void of evidence, these stories were free to include whatever speculations seemed best to fit the legends and rumors already swirling about Grigory's life and death. And that was all before Felix Yusupov's own myth-making threw a shroud over Rasputin's corpse, one that would hide the realities from our eyes for generations. Here's historian Douglas Smith to help us unravel the legend. So much of the myth of Rasputin's murder, which is something that everybody seems to know in some sort of detail, comes from Yusupov's memoirs. Yusupov's memoirs are a sort of network of lies, the tissue of half-truths, and an attempt to bathe himself in glory, if you will, for a truly horrible deed. He depicts himself, Yusupov does, as like sort of St. Michael slaying the dragon. He depicts Rasputin as a man that was impossible to kill, um, that he had sort of superhuman power in him, that he was Satan himself. And in fact, in the various versions of the memoirs that Yusupov writes, he, in each one, exaggerates the impossibility of killing Rasputin with each retelling of the tale. Felix didn't want to think of himself as a cold-blooded murderer. He certainly didn't want others to think of himself that way. He and his accomplices needed to believe that they were something more. And so the story that they told grew from the cold realities into something far more sinister, spiritual, legendary, but completely false. With each retelling of the tale, that, you know, they beat him, they poison him, they shoot him, he refuses to die, that they dump him in a hole in an icy branch of the Neva River, and even then he still breathes his last and tries to make the sign of the cross and eventually only dies of drowning. I mean, this is all just a pack of lies that Yusupov told to make himself feel better, to aggrandize himself, and quite frankly, to earn money because he was now living in in exile after the revolution in Europe and, and had no way to make a living other than to keep retelling the story of how he had killed Rasputin. When Dr. Kosoratov opened the body, he found no water in the lungs. Grigory didn't drown. He was dead before he hit the water. But that's just one aspect of Felix's myth dissolved by the findings of the autopsy. Chief among the details that Felix would build his story on was the thing that he couldn't shake, that Grigori had swallowed an army's worth of cyanide that night, 
and remained unscathed. As Felix told the story, he had added massive doses to the cakes and wine, and Rasputin had taken it all. As far as he was concerned, some malignant spiritual energy had preserved him from its effects. That would become one of the key details of the Rasputin myth that would be told and retold down the generations up to today. But traces of cyanide is something Dr. Kosorotov would have been able to spot right away. In fact, he didn't find any food in Grigory's stomach at all. No cakes, poisoned or not. And if there had been something put in Rasputin's drink, it couldn't have been a lethal dose of cyanide. The body would have given off a signature scent of almonds, among other telltale effects. But the autopsy report noted nothing of the kind. Maybe Felix was telling outright lies about the attempt to poison Grigori. But the other possibility is that they dosed him with something other than cyanide without knowing it. Some historians think it was just an inert powder, substituted along the way, perhaps by someone with a pang of conscience. Felix and his friends were simply too ignorant to know what they had wasn't the real deal. It wasn't that Grigori had miraculously survived poisoning. It was simply that his murderers bungled just about every part of their attempt to kill him. Dr. Kosorotov found, when he examined the body, that the killing looked messy, but fairly ordinary. Fairly easy, that is, to explain. In ultimate fact, there was probably never any poison. And in point of fact, we know from photographs taken at the autopsy of Rasputin's body after it was pulled from the ice that he was shot three times at close range, twice in the torso and a third and final time at point-blank range right into the middle of his forehead. Rasputin was more than dead when they finally dumped his body into the icy river. Grigori had been shot once through the stomach and liver. He had been shot again in the back, and the bullet pierced his kidney and lodged against his spine. Either one of those could have killed him, given enough time. And the shot to his head was certainly enough to end his life. But generations of historians, investigators, and writers have had to cut through Felix Yusupov's tall tales to get at the truth. The man was mortal, but the legend has proved impossible to kill. The rumors spread. Grigory Rasputin was protected from poison by dark spiritual powers. We know that's false, but it was so much more fun to believe it. Rasputin was nearly immortal and survived being shot, beaten, stabbed, and poisoned, only to be killed by the rivers of Russia. That's false, too. But there's a sick pleasure in recounting the amount of punishment one body could absorb before nature steps in to finish the job. And then, of course, there's the story that comes from the most salacious rumors about Grigori's sexual conquests, and the gossip that he was, as we've all heard, the lover of the Russian Tsarina. It's those earlier stories that gave rise to the idea that Felix, or someone among the killers, cut off Rasputin's penis and preserved it. After all, it had grown its own legends, all blown out of proportion with each time they were repeated. It was even enough for collectors and museums to claim over the years that they have its inhuman mass pickled in brine, while its unbelievable size makes it a marvel to visitors today. And what could tickle fancies more than a story like that? Here's the thing, though. It's unbelievable, because it's not true. Grigori's body was intact at the autopsy. But as with so many other parts of Rasputin's life, the truth never got in the way of a juicy anecdote— the truth about his exploits was far from mystical. As we know by now, he was simply a man who used his position and his preaching 
to take sexual advantage of women who were vulnerable, but that truth doesn't lend itself to playful retellings. In reality, Grigori's whole corpse was embalmed, dressed in white silk, and sealed in a zinc coffin. Before the lid was closed, he was joined by some dried flowers and an icon. It was far quieter than the storytellers would have us believe. Also far quieter was the royal household. Nicholas arrived back in Petrograd on Monday, December 19th. The year 1916 was coming to a close on a sober note for the imperial household. They were shaken, but one attendant noted that the name Grigory Rasputin was never spoken that night. In the following days, though, they were all asking, what should be done with the holy man's body? Alexandra started putting the question to her advisors directly. The palace commandant suggested that it be shipped back to Siberia. Other officials responded with worry. What if the news got out that Rasputin's corpse was traveling by train? There might be a violent demonstration on the way. Even with his death, the hatred of Grigory Rasputin had not dissipated. That was clear to see for just about everyone, which is also why they started to worry when Alexandra insisted that he be buried nearby. In fact, Rasputin had participated in laying the cornerstone of a new church at Alexander Park, near the imperial residence. Alexandra wanted him there. So on the early morning of Wednesday, December 21st, soldiers began to dig a shallow grave in the foundations of the church. A police van arrived with its heavy burden. By the time the imperial family followed, the zinc coffin was already in the ground. Only a few people were there, beyond Nicholas, Alexandra, their daughters, and a few of their household. No one in Rasputin's family was consulted. Maria and her sister Varvara had left the capital without an invitation to their own father's burial. Alexandra and each of her daughters tossed a white rose down into the hole in the earth. Nicholas wrote a brief account in his diary. A sad spectacle, he said. Then the imperial family went back to their daily lives. Meetings with officials, war briefings, and even with Grigori now gone, the revolving door of ministers. Alexandra and her daughters returned to nursing duties, attending hospital trains and celebrating their care for Russia's wounded sons with ornate Fabergé eggs. At the graveside, a military guard prohibited anyone from approaching. For a while, Alexandra made daily visits, holding herself together. There were times, it seemed, that she still believed she was under her friend's protection. A few months later, she wrote to Nicholas that even though God had sent them a hard burden to bear, they should have courage. You should wear the cross, she wrote. It seems she had taken the one Rasputin was wearing on his chest when he died, and she had given it to the Tsar. The fact that nestling it against his heart failed to save Grigory from the bullets that killed him didn't seem to occur to Alexandra. She said it would help Nicholas when he was making difficult decisions. Besides, she was praying fervently for her husband, and she believed she wasn't the only one. Another voice was still reaching out to God on the Romanov's behalf. She told Nicholas that Rasputin was nearer to them than ever, even in the world beyond. And Alexandra was far from alone in that thought. It was widely reported that the Minister of the Interior was regularly attending seances. They whispered that he was always trying to summon Rasputin and to get advice from the murdered peasant from beyond the grave. As the days went by, other government officials started to observe that he attended to his duties less and less and spent his time at the Imperial Palace more and more. His motives, though, were more than suspicious, especially when he decided to take things up a notch. He started telling Alexander that he wasn't just getting messages from Rasputin. No, he said that the spirit of Rasputin had come back from the other side and taken up residence 
inside a new body. With Rasputin dead, Russia was saved. At least that's what the killers hoped. The dark forces that affected the empire through their Siberian puppet had that tool ripped from their hands. The Tsar's family would move on, and God would once again bless the empire. With the enemy's plots overthrown, they would have victory in battle, and a time of peace and plenty would follow. The French foreign minister wrote in his diary on December 20th that the public was rejoicing. They were kissing in the streets, he said, and marching to the churches, burning candles to the saints. The British agents wrote that the people of Petrograd were acting as if they were suddenly freed from a great weight. It was, they were saying, better than Russia's greatest victories in the war. All thanks to Felix Yusupov, Grand Duke Dmitri, and their band of heroes, right? Once again, a far bleaker reality would shatter the myths spun up by the propagandists of Russian aristocracy. And it was Nicholas, first of all, who felt the pinch, because it felt to him like the attack on Rasputin had a secondary target, his wife. So he felt he didn't have a choice. The murderers had to be dealt with. The rest of his family urged Nicholas to let the issue go. The murder had perhaps been misguided, but Grigory was only a peasant. Was Nicholas really going to pursue the members of his own bloodline over the death of someone like that? Alexandra had begun the prosecution. She had even put a grand duke under house arrest. But surely, Nicholas would see that all of this was an overreaction. If the murderers and their social set thought that the Tsar would see things their way, they once again misunderstood just how much Grigory Rasputin had meant to the Romanovs. On the 23rd of December, Grand Duke Dmitri received orders. He was being sent away from Petrograd to the Persian front. He was leaving the very next morning. In strict secrecy, he boarded the train and left the capital. No one was confused about why he was being pushed out into the war zone. Other aristocrats tried to push back. They got together and co-signed a letter asking for Nicholas to show mercy on the Grand Duke's youth and ill health. The Tsar's response? He scrawled by hand across the top of the letter, No one has a right to commit murder. And he returned it to sender. Felix was also exiled. Not that it was hard for him. He retreated from the capital only as far as his comfortable estate in the south. There he started to receive visits from the Russian nobility, people who wanted to congratulate him, and people who simply wanted to thumb their nose at the Tsar. Any bonds of love and trust that had existed between Nicholas and the nobility were broken, and that had massive implications for what came next, as the Russian elites took all their venom, all their spite, and all their grievances, and poured them out on the Tsar's doorstep and on his German wife. Here's historian Joshua Sanborn to say more. The criticisms of Alexandra, and then by extension Rasputin, a lot of it is wrapped up in, in quite, um, uh, I, I don't know the, the, the best way, way to put it. I mean, a lot of it is wrapped up, obviously, in anti-Germanism. A lot of it is wrapped up in, in, uh, in sexism, obviously. Uh, you know, that that's a lot of the criticism that's happening for them. Um, but it also doesn't reflect the fact that I talked about before, which is that the decisions they're making in 1960, after Nicholas leaves for the front in 1916, let's say, they're not that consequential. I don't think it actually matters that much who the Minister of Interior or Minister of Communications is, right? I, it, I just don't think it matters too much. Most of the actual work that's being done is being done by people that, that they don't have control over, especially in the military. And so 
you know, I don't see them as, as that important. Now, in terms of the loss of public faith on the part of the Petersburg elite, which is something important, the, the, the faith of your political elite is something important in a political system, it's obvious that they have an effect on that. So for sure, they have an influence on that. And that's why the, you know, that's why it's conservatives and, and ultra-right right-wing people that assassinate Rasputin. And one thing is clear. Nicholas was right to worry. By the end of 1916, Russian aristocrats weren't satisfied with the death of Rasputin. There were at least a few who considered killing Alexandra as well. Some even plotted a full-blown coup. In the end, Russian elites and government officials spent much of their time stewing over the ways that the Tsar was fumbling the reins, that they failed to see their own part in tearing the social fabric to shreds. They wanted someone to blame for what they were doing themselves. It's that blindness that Douglas Smith describes here so well. I came away after six years of, of research and writing and thinking about Rasputin, you know, seeing him as this great scapegoat, sort of one of the great scapegoats of history. And it's not to deny his faults, it's to not to deny him of responsibility for things that he did to further the demise of the autocracy. But everyone wants to put it all on his shoulders. It was strange to just read account after account after account of people who were part of Russia at the time, in the government, in the army, at court, and they all want to place it on Rasputin's shoulders, as if it hadn't been Rasputin, none of this would have happened. There would have been no war, there would have been no revolution, there would have been no downfall of the dynasty. And that's so utterly simplistic and incorrect that I hope, if nothing else, I can move us off of this simplistic way of thinking about him and his role and his place in history. There's a bitter irony to the ways that the Russian aristocrats obsessed over the Tsar and his wife. Because Rasputin or no, the truth is that the empire had long since slipped beyond the Tsar's control. If he or anyone had wanted to see a different future for Russia at the end of 1916, they would have to make those changes in the past. As historian Helen Rappaport explains, I think the big crucial turning point could have been 1905 after, you know, the fiasco of the Russo-Japanese War, terrible disaster for Russia uh, politically. Um, after that, and then the bloody Sunday protest march where innocent workers marched without weapons or anything, asking for reform and for better working conditions when they were attacked by Cossack troops. When that happened, that turning point, that was the point where Nicholas should have introduced major political concessions. If it introduced decent, democratic, constitutional government, if he'd allowed the Duma, the state Duma, to flourish instead of constantly censoring it and shutting it down, then I don't see why Russia could not have evolved into the kind of constitutional monarchy that was made such a success by King Edward VII in the years leading up to World War I. Because Russia was beginning to grow economically, beginning to catch up um, with Western Europe in those terms. And it could have flourished differently under a much more benign and democratic constitutional monarch. But as we know, Nicholas was never willing to give up what he considered a God-given right. He was the Tsar by heaven, and he was meant to rule. Under a Romanov, there would never truly be a democratic constitution. Nicholas was an autocrat. From the beginning to the bitter end. 
The bodies piled up. The war continued on. One death could easily get lost among the many millions of poor soldiers being killed on every side. In a clash between empires, it is the peasants who suffer. At least some of the aristocrats saw that, like the wealthy woman who followed Alexandra's lead and tied on a nurse's gown. She believed that as a powerful matron, charity was her duty, so she took up work in the hospitals. But simple charity fell far short of what the Russian elites would have needed to do to truly turn Russia toward a different future. That began to dawn on her when she overheard a few of the wounded soldiers talking together. They were peasants, like many Russian fighting men, and they were talking about Rasputin. He was like them, a peasant. Whatever else might have been true about him, all the rumors and dark whispers about his evil proclivities, they saw that he had climbed high. He had done what peasants who farmed the land, who raised horses, and who worked in the factories could only dream of. They said there he was, the one peasant who had reached the Tsar himself. But what did he get in return? The real masters of society had him murdered. By the dawn of 1917, the Russian people had decided long ago that they suffered more than enough at the hands of these masters of society. If the aristocrats talked idly about a coup to overthrow the Tsar, the Russian people were about to show their ruling class what it really looked like to seize power from abusive masters. Here's historian Joshua Sanborn to describe the outbreak of revolution. It begins on uh, on International Women's Day, which was a relatively new socialist holiday uh, instituted in uh, as a result of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in New York City, um, and uh, and in. Uh, again, driven by socialist parties and by labor movements as, as a way to sort of recognize women within, uh, within the socialist movement. And um, so International Women's Day is, is, provides the, the, the opportunity for many women across the city of Petrograd to, um, to go out on, on marches. And, and what they want to protest at this point um, is a series of things. The war, uh, the Tsarist administration, and the fact that their lives have now been taken over by uh, increasingly long breadlines. And they're putting the blame for this where it actually belongs, on the Tsar and on the, and on the war itself. They're, they're not wrong about who has led them to this, to this situation. And when the defense factories also go out on strike and join them, it becomes a crisis for the police in Petrograd. They attempt to deal with this by blocking off bridges, by doing a series of other things. They shoot into the crowd at several moments, but then they feel that they have to call in the army. The army has several barracks in the city, and they have to call those soldiers up to help them police the city. And when they do that, it turns out that the soldiers are on the uh, on the side of the protesters. You have mass mutinies among the soldiers in the Petrograd garrison. They drive the police away. The police throw away their uniforms. They flee on trains. They hide. Um, uh, they break open the jails. They start burning court records. All this stuff is happening. The Tsar um, orders troops to be sent to from the front to put down the rebellion in the city. Um, and uh, the first groups of those, when they arrive in the outskirts, their commanders quickly realize that um, that if they send troops into the city, those troops are also going to rebel, and then they're going to have a real problem on their hands. So they start to withdraw. The one person who could never withdraw from his most disastrous decisions, from his most self-destructive beliefs, was the Tsar himself. He had denied the truth for so many years, saying that the Russian people could never turn against him, and he surrounded himself with advisors who agreed. The only friends the Romanovs were willing to entertain were fierce champions of the monarchy. It was short-sighted. It was blind. But over the course of their reign, Nicholas and Alexandra had built themselves an echo chamber, and for years, the loudest voice in that room, telling them exactly what they wanted to hear, 
had been Grigory Rasputin. But of course, it was others before him, and after his death, it was men like the Minister of the Interior who floated in on his wake. All of that had insulated the Romanovs from really understanding what was happening in Russia, until, of course, it was too late, and the revolution had begun. When Nicholas finally faced that reality, it washed over him like a tidal wave. Here's more from Helen Rappaport. Nicholas, I feel, was duped into abdicating. There he is, uh, hundreds of miles away from home, when two members of the government, the Duma, came out by train and persuaded him that, that you know, revolution had broken in Petrograd, there was disarray in the army, people, the, the, the conscript army, lots of them were deserting at the front, morale was low, and it was, you know, there was so much disaffection with the Tsar and the, the old imperial regime that the best thing he could do to save Russia and the country and the war effort was to give up the job. He allowed himself to be persuaded, I think, that his abdication would save Russia. And it would also save the war effort because obviously with the revolution, everyone was worried that Russia was now going to pull out of the war effort as well on the Eastern Front. So Nicholas abdicated thinking that he, by his him removing himself as the hated Tsar, um, the situation could be saved. And of course, in this time, as in so many others, Romanovs look for strength not to the powers of the earthly realm, but to the heavens. It was divine guidance they had always sought, and it was to God's messengers on earth that they bent their ear. After all, there was no one on earth above them, so it was only to the powers of God's church that they were truly willing to bend. In revolutionary Russia, though, even the church was changing. And soon enough, it was the church itself that was beginning to pave the way for the Russian people to go in a new direction, as historian Heather Coleman describes. The church did not stand up for the Tsar. The official church said goodbye when the Tsar abdicated. And the next morning got to, got to work reforming itself and got to work getting on with the things that it wanted to do. And the main thing that the church wanted to do was to call a, a great church council to rethink the relationship between the church and the state and the relationships within the church between the, 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 the bishops and the parish clergy and the laity and to reorganize the church for uh, the modern world. And so um, right, almost immediately after the collapse of the, of the empire, the, 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 the church council was called and it met uh, in Moscow um, starting in August of 1917 and was, was going right through during the revolution of October and uh, into early 1918 during the revolutionary days. In the spring of 1917, local dioceses are choosing their representatives and there is a great revolution that is going on in the church and people are transforming the church from below into a democratic organization. There are, there are dioceses that, that ejected their bishops and voted for bishops, which was not canonical, <laughs> unheard of. But we can see how, how people are living out the implications of that democratic revolution of February 1917 
in their church life. And these are people of all social groups who are doing this because the church incorporates all social groups. And so I, I really think that, that the way that the church um, is having its own revolution that is part of this broader revolution of 1917. The last pillar supporting imperial rule had been pulled away. Once, the leaders of the church had been introducing Nicholas and Alexandra to mystical guides like Grigory Rasputin. And as they worked to take on the modern world, the church in Russia remade itself into an institution that would endure, long after the doomed Romanovs were finally gone. They had always done things their own way. For a while, after Nicholas stepped down, Alexandra continued to say that the uprisings around them were nothing serious. They were just hooligans screaming for bread. Sometime soon, the excitement would pass away, and Russia would quiet down again. But oh, how wrong she was. Riots grew worse. A new government was created. In October of 1917, that provisional government was overthrown by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks. All of Russia was consumed by civil war. Nicholas and Alexandra became what they had never been before, citizens under a new civilian authority. And then they became its prisoners. Let's turn to Helen Rappaport one final time to tell us about the last days of the Romanovs. Nicholas later realized, I think, in captivity in the last months of his life that he'd been tricked into abdicating, that it had not achieved anything. The Bolsheviks had taken over. Russia pulled out of the war with Germany in March 1918. And things were even worse for Russia. He hadn't saved Russia by abdicating. Alexandra just retreated more and more into religiosity. Every day the girls, one or other girl, would have, when they, they had their brief exercise periods, morning and afternoon, one of the girls always had to stay with mother indoors. She rarely went outside because she was so sickly or indisposed and read the gospels to her or read the bible or some pious work the last few letters she wrote were very laden with religious references and and a very profound sense i think of reconciliation acceptance fatalism both she and nicholas were deeply deeply fatalistic and you get the same thing with Nicholas's last few letters. And then his sense of utter despair, the last um, journal entry he wrote was about, I think it was the 11th of July, about six days before they were murdered, where he, he just, you could sense him giving up. He said, we've had absolutely no news from outside. The sense of despair because they didn't know what was going on in Russia, how their relatives were, what was happening in the rest of the world. The sense of abandonment, I think, was pretty profound in Nicholas. And I think he was obviously deeply religiously resigned to his fate as well. As for Rasputin's family, he left very little for them. Despite the stories about how much wealth he must have hoarded by playing parasite on the aristocracy, Grigori didn't have a pile of gold to give to Maria. All the money and gifts that had been showered on him were in turn given away. He had a little property and some money in the bank, but given the state of the Russian economy at the time, it didn't add up to much at all. At first, after Grigory had been killed, Maria and her sister were held by the Russian police. When they were finally released, they were able to go back to Siberia in the spring of 1917. 
But leaving the capital didn't mean they were returning to the home they had left. All of Russia was changing. In April of that year, a group of soldiers came through, and they ransacked the Rasputin home. Whatever was valuable, they stuffed it into sacks and carried it off. Even the clocks were taken. Any pictures or images of Grigory were smashed, torn, and stomped into the dirt in front of Maria's eyes. She begged them to stop, but they wouldn't listen. Eventually, there was nothing left for Maria in her father's house. She went looking for something new, something more stable than her father Grigory's legacy, something that would provide her a future. So she found her way into a marriage with a local man. But it wasn't a happy one. The following spring, the weather was bad. River travel wasn't safe, and the only way to travel from place to place was over tracks through Siberia that also suffered from the storms. Despite the dark clouds, though, the Romanov family was on the move. They were being taken from Tobolsk to Ekaterinburg, where their fate awaited them. There, in a locked room, a team of gunmen would execute them one and all. It was the death that none of them would escape, whatever the stories would later say. To reach that doom, though, Nicholas, Alexandra, and their children had to travel rough roads, a journey that brought them to the Siberian town of Pokrovsko. As we've said before, it was the crossroads, the place along the way for changing horses. As they came to halt, the Romanov family looked up and realized that they were facing the largest house in town. It was the house that had been purchased for his family by Grigory Rasputin. It took a long time for their captors to make the change, so Nicholas, Alexandra, and their daughters stood by uneasily, looking at the house of their murdered friend. One of the Romanov daughters even made a sketch while they waited. It took so long, in fact, that the Rasputin family saw them outside, Grigory's wife Praskovia and his daughter Maria. One was the woman whose husband had left her, the other the daughter left destitute by his death. They stood together in the house, but did not dare to approach the doomed travelers. There was no sense in trying to push past the line of armed guards. Maria Rasputin simply said that they gathered at the window. The two families faced each other across the distance, the Rasputins on one side, the Romanovs on the other. While Nicholas and Alexandra looked on, the daughters of their families raised their hands and blew kisses through the air. It was a brief moment of tenderness, although I have to believe kisses blown at gunpoint might struggle to find their target. It was the final, brief moment of connection that Nicholas and Alexandra would have with their friend, the only respite to be found on the Romanovs' final journey to the death of their dynasty. Hey folks, Aaron here. Today's episode was the final chapter in our story. If you've enjoyed the results of our team's hard work, your reviews and ratings would be incredibly welcome over on Apple Podcasts. Your kind words go a long way toward helping newcomers tap that subscribe button, and all of that helps our show. It's been an honor to be your guide over the past few weeks, and I look forward to our next tour through the dark corners of history, but we're not quite done with this season just yet. Starting on January 5th, we'll be releasing all four of our incredible historian interviews in full. These are powerful conversations with leading scholars in the world of Rasputin and the Romanovs, and the insight and detail they bring to the topic are perfect for those who want more. Just stay subscribed to the show in your app, and those interview episodes will arrive automatically every week. In fact, if you stick around through this brief sponsor break, I'll give you a taste of what's to come. The theory goes was that 
British agents killed Rasputin as a way to prevent some sort of peace treaty between Russia and Germany. Now, there's no truth in any of this, and there's no reality that this ever happened. Um, but there have been, been books written about it. There have been documentaries made about it. And there's even been this theory put forward that if you look at the, the bullet hole in Rasputin's head, that the markings around the hole prove that it was a bullet fired by a British gun, by an Enfield pistol. And that this means that whoever fired the fatal shot was a British agent. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio, with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com slash unobscured. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>